0: Pursuing Personal Peace, your on-air book club. The Dalai Lama said, World peace must develop from inner peace. Peace is not the absence of violence. Peace is the manifestation of human compassion. But how do we find that inner peace, which in turn leads to world peace, the world peace that the Dalai Lama is talking about? How do we do this practice in our own lives? And particularly, how do we do it in these very anxious times?
1: We have discovered that sifting through the rich Buddhist literature now available in the West is a productive way to find guidance toward obtaining, cultivating, generating the causes and conditions for personal peace. This program, Pursuing Personal Peace, is not meant to be a teaching on Buddhism although we have learned a lot along the way, but rather a discussion on workable ideas to bring inner peace to oneself and thereby to express that peace for the benefit of the world. Julia is
0: an MD and a master of traditional Chinese medicine, practicing locally as a licensed acupuncturist. She fell more deeply in love with meditation while engaged in humanitarian work along the Burma-Thai border
1: and while on foot in the Himalaya. Margaret is a retired women's health nurse practitioner, a current student of Buddhism, and holds a master's degree in transpersonal psychology through Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado.
0: Together, we decided to study these books, and the present book we are reviewing is Reflections on Silver River by Kin McLeod and subtitled Tokme Zongpo's 37 Practices of a Bodhisattva. Ken MacLeod, author of Reflections on Silver River, calls on his many years of experience to help explain subtle and deep teachings in clear and simple ways. He has written three other books, Wake Up to Life, An Arrow to the Heart, and The Great Path of Awakening. He has a graduate degree in mathematics from the University of British Columbia in Canada and more than twenty years of training in Eastern disciplines as well as over twenty years teaching and consulting experience. His work can be found at unfetteredmind.org.
1: Who is this Tokme Zangpo referenced in the subtitle of our newest book together? Well, evidently Ken McLeod thought that Tokme Zangpo was a cool enough dude so as to an author an entire book about him. Can we meet him today? Well, actually, Togme Zangpo lived a long time ago. I think the answer is that we can meet him in ourselves, whenever we practice pursuing personal peace. Togme Zangpo is a man born in Tibet over 700 years ago. According to Rigpa Wiki, he was, quote, an extremely learned scholar, and he devoted his entire life to meditation. That same source tells us that Togme Zangpo Quote, was able fully to take upon himself the suffering of others and to give them his own well-being, and that without any expectation whatsoever, he was extremely generous to all, particularly the poor, the destitute, and those who were suffering. End quote. So, this historical good fellow composed thirty-seven stanzas on how to be benevolent in the ultimate sense, and those verses are the topic of the book. We are now reading together. So welcome to
0: all our listeners. We are glad to be here with you and glad to have you here with us. Just to catch you up, Julia, Karen and I reviewed two books last year. The first one was Start Where You Are by Pema Chodron. In that book, we learn to be present with life just as it is and just as we are right now. We had to learn to accept the good, the bad, and the ugly of our lives without judgment. The second book we read was Dancing with Life by Philip Moffat. In Philip's book, we explored the Four Noble Truths. We learned that there is suffering, there is a cause to suffering, there is a way to end it, and how to end it. Karen and I had a wonderful time exploring these new and sometimes very complex concepts. I can't wait to explore this new book with you. Oh, and you just got back from a trip, right? Would you feel comfortable telling us about that?
1: Absolutely. I would be glad to, Margaret. Thanks for the sweet introduction. I think you went on a trip too, but ours were rather different, weren't they? In that the outer conditions of mine were designed explicitly to point toward engaging what you and Karen learned in those first two books on the air whereas your trip might have involved a warm, sunny beach. Yet stress still arises, even in that context, right? Right. I think it's the inner orientation that increases our power to turn the heart toward pursuing personal peace. So I have to really offer you my respect here for applying the suggestions of Pema and of Philip without that outer prodding that imbued my recent journey really walking the talk. Let us also pause at the outset here to sense into this long line of meditators and writers, as well as their modern counterparts, whose books make for such good conversation and practical, effective tools in life. I think it's so important as well to acknowledge you and Karen for creating this venue for literature that might be of larger benefit. Good idea. It feels lucky to join you. Thank you. Mm, thank you. So I have just returned from sem- temporary ordination as a female novice Buddhist monk. That means there was this amazing experience, and now I'm a layperson again, integrating what I can into this regular life. That is, if anyone's life is really regular. Maybe contemplating this upcoming book with you and with our listeners will serve as a wholesome container for that process. A little bit about the trip. Although I'm not hugely religious, I do adore meditation, even the tumultuous pieces and the benefits it brings to me and to those with whom this life is connected, directly, indirectly. I feel great joy in meditating and therefore I also see value in learning about the cultural trappings and the historical underpinnings of contemplative practice. The ceremony, in which 45 women participated from many swaths of society, and from a few different countries, was called Going Forth. It involved the experience of receiving great generosity from the public, much chanting, twice-daily formal seated meditation, twice-daily contemplative work meditation, shaving of the head, completely, and wearing maroon robes in a traditional way that pretty much necessitated teamwork with one's peers, even to get dressed in the morning. In our case, that was around 4.30 a.m. every day. We ate one main meal each day before noon, taking only what was freely offered, and all in one bowl, even if that meant pod thai and stinky fish soup and funny pink high-fructose ice cream all mixed together in that bowl, finishing everything as a sign and a practice of gratitude. And we even got to experience going on alms round, on back streets, at sunrise. Not only the scenery, but the hearts of the people were so beautiful in in that offering, in that exchange. A monastery is a different environment than the average silent meditation retreat. But even in the context of so many activities, our minds grew concentrated. My body was not hungry, it no longer felt pain, and we seemed to need less sleep, too. Of course, it did take ten days to regain the ten pounds I lost, and I am bald. We also studied the history of women's ordination in Buddhism, and the stories of females who took robes 2,600 years ago there has been some confusion regarding the women's lineage within various cultural contexts. So our group of practitioners was somewhat cutting edge in terms of women once again receiving full empowerment in the monastic role, and also with respect to the reinvigoration of a support network equal to that one which sustains male monks for daily requisites and teaching recognition.
0: Julia, that sounds so fascinating. What an what an amazing trip you took! And by the way, she's not bald. She's got little hairs growing in all over her head. <laughs> and I have a question for you. Please. Now that you've been a temporary
1: monk, would you like to be a full time monk? Well, you know this life is an ever changing process, and. It felt like an incredibly fortunate experience, and yet I'm not in the place now where I would make that choice. Who knows what the future may bring, Margaret? That's right. May I ask about your
0: trip? Well, we went on a trip too. My family took a trip to Cancun, Mexico, for a week. My son had a wonderful time, which was nice, and he came back, baked a beautiful hue of brown, as he does love playing on the beach with its ocean and sand. But wouldn't you know it, we take him to Mexico for a different cultural experience, and the two kids he befriends on the beach are from Colorado.
1: Go figure.
0: (laughs) I think that proves I'm not in control. (laughs) But for me, I noticed a little different experience as I found myself reliving the last two books we have reviewed here on the program. I was reminded of Pema's book, Start Where You Are, as I watched the many people on the crowded beach appear to be trying to be someone other than they were. Granted, this is my take on the scenes that I was observing, but there appeared to be lots of posturing, lots of selfie photo sticks in play, lots of alcohol consumption, lots of makeup applied, and lots of skin showing. I didn't feel judgmental, but more worried. With Pema, we had studied how chasing after images and storylines keeps a person from being present in the moment and thereby peaceful with life as it plays out here and now. I worried that the people who appeared to be playing out an image were losing out on an opportunity to experience just being here now. I also got to watch myself handle confusion. At first, in a new place, it's always hard to figure out where things are and how things work. But being in a foreign country with a different language definitely slows down that process. I didn't know a lot of things. I noticed that I rarely let myself acknowledge my own confusion. I usually immediately find the answers and work right through the confusion. But this time, thanks to Pema's instructions on being present to what is taking place... I stayed with the confusion. I breathed it in and felt it in my body. It was actually kind of fun to watch my ego squirm. My ego definitely doesn't like to be confused. And just the freedom to be aware of that was enlightening and feeling free. Also, I was reminded of Philip's book and how desire runs our lives, which in turn results in suffering for ourselves and for others. I watched as folks stood in line in the hot sun for a chance to take a plastic canoe out onto the ocean, or how they stood in line for a free ice cream cone. To stand in the hot sun for an hour takes a pretty strong desire. I wondered if any one of them had asked themselves what desire is and how it was motivating them, and what the consequences of being run by desire might be. I've heard exposure to the concepts we have discussed in the last two books can change your life. It sure seemed true for me. Even in a seemingly trivial thing like a day at the beach, my outlook was very different than it would have been in my youth. In my youth, I would have been right in there playing the I am one of the cool people games. Now I feel more like an engaged witness rather than a participant. Okay. So, Julia, before we start reading about the practices of a bodhisattva, maybe we should say what a bodhisattva is. Not a bad idea. Now, although I've heard many different definitions, the word bodhisattva is a Sanskrit term, usually taken to mean anyone who aspires to become enlightened not for themselves alone, but to be able to liberate other sentient beings as well. So did the gatekeeper, who makes sure all are through the gate before he goes through. What is your understanding of what a bodhisattva is?
1: Well, Margaret, I love that image of a gatekeeper. Thank you so much. I don't claim to know very much, but what I can say is that that subtitle, The 37 Practices of a Bodhisattva, certainly does beg the question, what is a bodhisattva? And to that end, I've been doing some reading about this topic, contemplating the views of laypeople and monastics, from old school to modern texts, from the island of Sri Lanka to the mountains of Bhutan. And it turns out that in Buddhist meditation of all lineages, there are three frameworks within which to aim the heart and mind in practice. Some say that all such paths lead to the same place, but at least in the beginning, different approaches seem to suit different meditators. One, there is the Arhant path, the path of the renunciate, leading to personal liberation or enlightenment. Two, there is the path of the Pacheca Buddha, or solitary Buddha. You could maybe imagine someone spending a lifetime in a cave meditating, becoming enlightened by him or herself. And so that, That being is an enlightened, and also a Buddha, but not one who teaches. Three, there's the path of the Bodhisattva, which refers to someone whose practice of meditation is grounded in the genuine and earnest aim, the urgent desire to benefit as many beings as possible, even if this means delaying his or her own enlightenment. It's like a Buddha in training program. This last iteration of motivation for practice is the topic of our current book discussion. So, Julia, how would you feel about the two of
0: us doing a little overview of this book before we even get started? Let's do it,
1: Margaret. So, quite possibly, I enjoy Ken MacLeod most in his own personal words of introduction to this book, his own story, rather than in the remaining body of the text. The book itself contains his own interpretation of a wonderful and very old composition. And he does so with the intention of sharing its positive outlook. The nature of these kinds of commentaries is such that the author will reflect on his or her own experience in relation to the ancient classical writing. Although I found each of the ancient 37 stanzas lovely and instructive for how to live this life in a beautiful and benevolent manner, for how to aspire to make this entire life an offering in and of itself. I cannot necessarily say that my experience always parallels his. We're in different packages. What I did find neat was that initially, when commentator McLeod happened upon the words of this author, Tokme Zangpo, having never heard of him, he thought the guy was kind of weird. Some verses evidently did not resonate with him at all. Only later, when he was on a big long retreat himself and undergoing significant physical hardship, when he found himself in a state of mental anguish, that was when he spontaneously re-encountered these 37 teachings that are the subject of our book today. And only then did he begin to find them applicable in his personal and seemingly dire situation. Thereafter in his life, the writings of Tokmei Zangpo kept popping up unexpectedly so that he would turn them over, reflect on them throughout the changing nature of experience, and he found them to be somewhat universal in their benefit. Ken MacLeod writes that something special happened. He says that around the time he was undergoing great stress and simultaneously pondering these writings of Tokmei Zangpo, that one day he emerged from his room, barely able to stand, and was suddenly awash in appreciation for the freshness of each moment, touched by the warmth of the sun, the sight or fragrance of trees and flower, all life in bloom. Upon re-encountering Tokme Zangpo from that vantage point of his own deep ache, in that body, in that heart, in his own mind, McLeod now found the previously weird-sounding language to be clear and the advice that was offered refreshingly uncompromising. McLeod speaks of newfound clarity and simplicity without telling us not to enjoy things, without saying not to attribute meaning to our experiences. Tokmi Zhangpo does recommend that we let go. Of course, one hears about letting go all the time, from myriad teachers, many religions, and from the New Age. But something in these short, sweet 37 stanzas struck a special chord in MacLeod. He speaks to a freedom, not necessarily a freedom to say or do whatever we want in the moment that might not be such a good idea in the long run. Rather, a freedom of the heart wherein we are not bound by our own reactivity, instead fortified in our expression of this life by the cultivation of a much greater sort of wonder and joy and generosity. As it turns out, Ken MacLeod even considered that perspective juicy enough to be worth sharing by making this book. I've felt that way in my own life, wherein I encounter some sort of supposedly pithy teachings and feel that their guidance is irrelevant later on coming across those very same concepts within another context and from a different time or place or within a shifted set of relational circumstances there might be new found resonance and the way i plan on listening to these verses as we continue to consider them in our on-air book club is to let them filter in lightly to take what feels yummy and pertinent and let the rest fall away until some other time when different causes and conditions might make for a different set of resistances and of receptivities. I look forward to reading this book with you, Margaret, and with those of you who are tuning in right now on k Radio.
0: According to Ken, the first nine verses of the 37 practices set out the discipline that establishes a foundation for spiritual growth. We are advised that significant changes in our lives internally, if not externally, will be necessary in order to appreciate this opportunity. We are told that we don't have to change the form of our lives, but more important is to change how we approach life and how we live it. In verses 10 to 18, we are practicing taking and sending, or a form of tonglen, which our listeners will remember being exposed to in Pema's book. Zongpo refers to taking and sending a lot. As it is a way to come to appreciate that everyone is in pain on some level. Ken says Zhang Po's aim is to be free of the tyranny of reaction and to be awake in what is arising internally and externally. It's a different way of experiencing life itself. In verses 19 to 24, Zhang Po talks about emotional reactions and how they bounce us around from one reaction to another. In verses 25 to 30, He talks about the six perfections, something else we covered in Pema's book. Kin says the use of some of the examples that are beyond our our ability to relate intellectually are meant to be related to on an emotional level. A direct knowing can take place. Verses 31 to 36 cover several general and important points. Here the confusion is resolved and clarity takes its place. The last of the 37 practices is about the practice of dedication. Ken explains that during doing a dedication works on three levels. One, it counteracts spiritual pride and greed. Two, it is a gesture of generosity motivated by compassion. And three, it reminds us that nothing really belongs to us. I've always wondered why we did dedications at the ends of teachings. Now I know. Ken summarizes the introduction by saying that he found that over time, each verse pointed to a hidden depth, both in terms of how to interact with the world and how to be clear in life. It's going to be an interesting book.
1: That's for sure. But
0: however, Julia, I've noticed that this book is steeped in Buddhism and that the goals are so high. I fear I might get discouraged. I know when I go on a retreat and have an opportunity to speak with my teacher, it has often been pointed out to me that my ego is still very much in charge. So here's my concern about this book. What if the bar is just too high for me? For example, let's take the story of the Buddha in another lifetime, coming across the tigress who was too weak to feed her cubs he cut himself and dripped his blood into her mouth so she could regain her strength. Then when she was strong enough, she ate him and used the energy to suckle her cups. The Buddha-to-be did this out of compassion and love for all sentient beings and was glad to give his life in this way. I read that and my ego went on high alert. My ego knows it's its job to take care of me, and sacrificing myself to a tigress would not fall into the category of taking care of me. From what we have been reading in other books, I am supposed to be working on softening that ego, and stories like that seem to entrench it as my ego reacts with disbelief. Julia, do you think the teachings in this book are going to fall under the category of our attention being heightened through our emotional shock rather than presenting us with goals beyond our reach? That we don't need to expect ourselves to live up to the 37 verses as capably as Tokmei Zongpo did? Maybe we will just be looking at aspirations. I have to admit I rather hope so, because I don't want to set myself up for failure.
1: What do you think? Oh, Margaret, well, yes. In fact, I did notice that the bar is set rather high. But, you know, I was raised by someone who sometimes used shocking or incendiary speech to direct my attention to a place inside or outside that I might not have really looked at before. Um, And I also, I don't think our process with this book has to be religious or in any way harsh. In, In my practice as a healer, my rule is that to modulate the intensity of of the healing process such that it can be healing, but that it can still be received. And I feel that way about life, too, that we receive what we can and we modulate the intensity level of, of the stimulus so that the resistance won't preclude our being able to receive the benefit I think the situation is this, we are reading an interesting book together, parts of which might or might not be compelling, exploring the ideas of these two guys, one ancient and another living. Wasn't that first book you and Karen read on the air called, Start Where You Are? I mean, that is just so relevant. If we acknowledge that we, the two of us, and likewise all listeners, are merely simple human beings doing the best we can, and if we read for the places that resonate and those that might seem useful for as many of us as possible, if we are honest in our assessment of what works for us and what might not be so applicable, then we will have a better chance of working with these pithy suggestions. If we choose to do so, right? Certainly there is nothing wrong with just enjoying the consideration of these stanzas together, and then deciding to let them go. Personally, I rather think that such an approach is often the healthiest and most appropriate response to our cultural inundation with information. Sift it and let it go. Sift it and let it go. That could just be the phrase that arises due to having baked scones yesterday, but Although I'm just getting to know these two literary fellows, my guests, that is, Mr. Ken McLeod and Mr. Tokmei Zhangpo, would probably delight in a light-hearted observance of their words. I spent much of my growing up with one rule, just show up. At some point in my thirties, that changed to just show up and try hard. That can backfire. There really isn't much use in utter seriousness. I was, I was thinking of taking a shower. If you just show up to take a shower, it happens, fine. If you show up and try harder, does that really affect the day in a way that is worth repeating? Does that really enhance our ability to pursue personal peace? No. So pretty soon I was back to just show up, much happier. I mean, if we show up completely in each moment, as best we can, what else can we really do? So I am going to apply that to our book club, if you don't mind. In closure, then, here's a quotation by Rabindranath Tagore from his poem beginning, The butterfly counts, not months, but moments, and has time enough. Have you heard this one? I bet you will recognize the next part. He says, Let your life dance lightly, on the edges of time, like dew, on the tip of a leaf. Can we do that? I think so. Yes. And that's
0: beautiful. That's beautiful, Julia. I think we can. So, let's look forward to next time when we start in with the first and maybe even the second verse. I hope our listeners will come with us along this very interesting and very different book. See you again.
2: Bye. Uh-huh.